You are listening to the Hebein Podcast, where scholarly research into the Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East is brought directly to you. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Hebein Podcast. I'm Dr. Josh, and today we are going to be talking about this weird word that gets thrown around a lot on our channel and uh, in these different podcasts, and that weird word is Assyriology. What is that? And and why is it so important? So we're also going to take a look at how Assyriology interacts with the Old Testament or the you know the Hebrew Bible, and ultimately how someone might get into these fields if you know after watching our uh, channel or listening to these podcasts they are motivated to do so. So on the line with me today is a very good friend of mine, Skylar Fiction who is going to be helping me kind of parse out the various aspects of this topic. Skylar runs a YouTube channel called The Skylar Fiction Show, where he hosts discussions, debates, um, various analyses of topics uh, ranging from theology and the Bible to politics, philosophy, secularism, you name it. So if you haven't done so, go check him out and subscribe to his channel. Uh, but Skylar, it is great to have you here today. Hey, hey, my friend. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I really appreciate you doing this. I thought that it would be good to have somebody that knows me pretty well. For those of you that don't know, Skylar and I um, do a lot of work together, particularly on his channel. And, uh, you know, somebody that knows me well, but maybe, you know, doesn't know exactly what it is that I do uh, in in some detail. So I thought you'd be a perfect person to kind of uh, tease some of these things out. So appreciate you helping me out on this. Oh, I'm I'm super excited because it gives me an opportunity to learn a little bit more about history, which is one of my favorite topics. And you know, you get to know a little bit more about Assyriology in general. I mean, awesome. I can tell you basic ideas off the top of my head about what it actually is, but that might actually be kind of like a good like starting point to maybe give us like a, a basic definition of what Assyriology is, uh, and maybe even like a time reference. Uh, to better understand, you know, when, when we talk about Assyriology, what, what time period are we talking about also? Yeah, that's... I think that might be a good place. Yeah, I agree. That's good. Um, and just so everybody knows, like, this is sort of off the cuff. Uh, nobody really has notes in front of them, so uh, forgive me if it takes me a second to think of some of these things. But yeah, Assyriology is essentially the study of the languages and the cultures of the ancient Near East, so ancient Iraq, Syria, you know, so the ancient Near East is is sort of broadly defined at times. It can go all the way from um, like ancient Anatolia down into Egypt, um, over into Iran. But but basically, as a Syriologist, we focus on um, ancient Iraq and Syria. But let's so let's let's back up a second and kind of talk more broadly, like Skylar was saying about the time frame and kind of generally what we're talking about. So the time frame is essentially from around 3000 BCE, maybe a little bit before that, but roughly around 3000 BCE down to, you know, it differs with different people, but let's just say the time of Alexander the Great, um, you know, down just, just before the you know, 300 BCE. So 3000 to 300 is roughly pretty good. Um, once Alexander the Great takes over that region and Hellenism kind of, you know, takes over, um, the study changes quite a bit. So, but that that's basically where we focus: three thousand to three hundred BCE. And um, again, it's for us. It's it's generally Iraq, maybe Western Iran, Syria. You know, those areas. But that's generally what a Syriology is, um, as far as time and place. But we we study things like um, d- during those during those periods you had two major languages um, that were that were spoken three you know if, when you get into the first millennium there's more but but basically you have Sumerian and Akkadian those are the two main languages that that are spoken that are studied by Assyriologists um, and so you know most will will study in depth those two and, and, and really uh, engage with the people that spoke them and the cultures that spoke them and try to get at what was day-to-day life like, um, how did history 
change and develop, you know, what, what, what sorts of historical changes took place and developments took place in different people groups and different governments, those sorts of things. Um, but it's all about that region of Iraq and Syria from 3000 to 300 BC. Do you have a, uh, a particular, uh, leader or, uh, ruler of a, of a dynasty, a country that you had basically spoke a lot of interest in you, like anything that like really excites you. Uh, like, who's one of your favorite characters uh, in this historical uh, time period? Yeah, that's a good question. Everybody, I would expect, would think uh, that Hammurabi, King Hammurabi, would be the one because you know the name of the channel that uh, that we have on YouTube and is <laughs> Digital Hammurabi. Uh, and I do, I do enjoy Hammurabi. Hammurabi reigned, by the way, just you know, 18th century BCE. Um, he was a king, a pretty significant king during what's called the Old Babylonian period. Um, but uh, I, I really like Shulgi. Um, so he was a probably one of the more significant kings in the late third millennium. Um, and yeah, I just. He, he was he was one of the big rulers in what's called the Or Three period, but he he was just a, a really interesting king and a lot of uh, a lot of royal hymns written about him and um, as so I really I really like Shulgi. Also, his name originally they they thought his name was pronounced Dungi, which you know is also a reason <laughs> that, that that someone <laughs> might like him uh, Shulgi, but Dungi, yeah. <laughs> What would you say, like when you, when you look at different like some of these cultures, like the Assyrians, the Babylonians? Uh, what are some like I, I hear a lot about how violent the Assyrians could have been, the, the leadership of the Assyrians uh, towards other countries and the way that they conquered. Um, how how similar are, are countries like Assyria or, or cultures like the Assyrians? and the Babylonians uh, to each other, how different are they to each other? Uh, are there any interesting facts? Uh, because, I mean, you, you, you're within such a close proximity, relatively, uh, in those times. Like, how different, how alike were these cultures back then? Yeah, that's, that's, a, really, that's a really good question. Um, so there's a difference, I think, between so a couple things, sort of, to preface this. One... Uh, we want to, you know, we obviously want to remember that we're talking about almost a 3,000 year span of time. So, you know, these people, while there's a great deal of continuity that existed between the the various cultures uh, over those time periods and things like the laws, the law, the legal traditions, and there's a lot of continuity there, they, they're different people um, and they develop in different ways. But something else that we we want to consider is that while, you know, if you go to a high school today or even a middle school, you'll see that these, uh, a lot of times these kids are roughly the same, right? They often will come from the same background, the same from the, come from the same community. Uh, but to, them, to themselves, they divide themselves into different cliques, different groups, right? They identify in different ways. Um, so there's a difference between are these kids kind of similar or are they different? It depends on what you mean. So, you know, mm. all these kids might have come from very affluent backgrounds. You know, the kids at like at a high school in Beverly Hills or something, you know, they're all come from very wealthy families or many of them very wealthy families. And they all have similar histories, you know, similar, you know, grew up in similar uh, ways. But then, of course, you've got, you know, kind of the punk rockers. Man, I'm really dating myself here, but... You kind of got the punk rockers over here, and you've got the um, I don't know the drama club over here, and you've got uh, boy, it's been a while. Um, who else? The jocks, you know, and the nerds, and whatever. You know what I'm doing is I'm just thinking back to the show Saved by the Bell. I think all right, so who 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 did they have? Um, and so th to themselves, you know, it, they would they would say we're very very different. You know, this this chess club is very these people in the chess club very different from the people that are out on the football field, you know, they would identify very, very differently, but, you know, essentially they're, they're coming from very similar backgrounds. They live in very similar areas. So it, we, we, we want to be careful about, um, how we, how we define, uh, 
people based on those terms. So that being said, you know, the Assyrians had a theological, um, you know, structure, a, a, a theological system that they utilized that differed from the Babylonians. Um, and yet uh, there's a lot of, you know, interplay and a lot of continuity between these groups. Um, there are people that lived, as you said, very close to one another and often uh, formed, you know, uh, the part of the same region, but yet, you know, distinguished themselves uh, in very different ways. So uh, that's actually a really, it's a really complicated question that I've probably skirted all around and not actually giving you an answer. Um, but it's difficult, I guess, is the short answer to determine, um, you know, as far as, as far as humans are concerned, you know, like they, they, they're all from a, a very similar region. Of course, you also have the, um, interplay of people coming into the region from outside and then assimilating into that group. And so, you know, uh, it's, it's, just like the United States in that sense, uh, or any other country for that matter. Um, it's complicated. And I think the things that we tend to focus on are how did they, m- more the clicks in high school uh, point of view, so less about their mm-hmm. actual physical background, um, you know, or genetic background or whatever, but and more on how they identified, what, how did they group themselves and... Uh, what were the markers that they used to distinguish themselves? Uh, but you also mentioned, you know, about their violence or, um, you know, their, their, what, how they behave maybe in wartime or, you know, how they were mm-hmm. distinguished in that way. That's also a complicated issue. So you think about the Assyrians, for example, the Assyrians were sort of known for being this incredibly violent group. And yet that was a strategy I think that they employed people have written about this uh, extensively, um, but they had you know sort of a calculated frightfulness, right? They would the the Assyrian king would campaign when things were going really well. He would campaign every year and kind of go and parade himself and his you know his army uh, before the people that were um, subjugated to him and. He, you know, there were times that they would depict great violence or uh, I think this is not my field of specialization, this particular violence in the Assyrians. But, um, you know, they would do things periodically that were incredibly violent or at least portrayed that they had in order to mm. have this sort of calculated frightfulness that the people under their um, under their dominion would think, well, I don't want to mess with. I don't want to mess with them. And if you think about this sort of from a big picture standpoint, you see in the Bible that if you, if you think about how Iraq and the ancient areas to sort of set up Iraq, Palestine, if you could picture that in your mind, the Mediterranean off to the west and the Persian Gulf kind of down to the southeast and, you know, the Tigris and the Euphrates River over on the east, um, you know, Palestine's over here on the Mediterranean coast and often in the first millennium, you had Palestine being subjugated to different regimes, first the Assyrians, then later the Babylonians, at way out to the west. And it wasn't like a day's journey to get there. So you have this, you know, this overlord that's living out there, and it takes some time for him to get to you. And you know, you 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 find out historically that uh, when Israel, for example, got conquered, or when Judah got conquered over there in Israel, they had to pay very heavy tribute, right? They had to pay a lot of money um, to their Assyrian and later their Babylonian overlords. And because of that, any it was, it was a very burdensome thing. And so anytime that they got wind, Israel or, or Judah got wind, that... Uh, there was some unrest in the political structure and the government over to the east, you know, that the Assyrians were, you know, the king was becoming weak or the king had died and there was sort of a, uh, a struggle for who was going to become the next king. 
they would sense that instability and they would think, well, they are not together enough to come over here and kick our asses if <laughs> if we rebel. All right, so you know what we're going to do? We're going to stop. We're going to throw off the yoke of uh, of of domination, you know, of rule of the Assyrians or of the Babylonians. We're not going to pay them that tribute. And and what they would do is they would often get a lot of, you know, several local um cities or 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 nations together to join forces to kind of fight against them, you know, to throw them off. And and of course the reason was that they just didn't want to pay that money. Um mm-hmm. and so if you're the Assyrians and you know that because of this great distance between you and the people that you're exacting tribute from, uh, will will lead at any moment to them rebelling if they're not terrified to do so. Uh, then then you're going to try to put the fear of God in them, uh, your God in particular. And uh, so you know you see this time and again that. You know, small nations, subject nations will um, sense that instability and then and throw off the yoke uh, and rebel and not pay that money. And the Assyrian king or the Babylonian king comes back in force and mm. and and lays them, you know, lays them waste. You know, it really, really does some terribly violent things. And the, the rationale here is that. Uh, they're going to think twice and even three times the next time they think, Hey, I should, I should over, you know, I should throw off the yoke here. I should stop, stop, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, paying that money. They're going to think twice and go, boy, if I do that, you know, they might not have their shit together right now, but when they get it back together, I'm in for a world of hurt. And, uh, yeah, so that, that sort of violence can play in their favor. So it's incredible the uh, when you think about the strategic resources you would need, the distance these armies would have to travel, you know, the amount of time that it would take for communication to go back and forth across this kind of like distant land of these empires. Um, and, and for them to be like a, a country like, you know, you said they try to overthrow their, you know, overthrow, get, get their freedom, not have to pay this, pay these, uh, these fees, this money. And, you know, it takes time, but these big nations, the Babylonians or the Assyrians, they're going to send their armies, yep. coordinate it, and they're going to they're going to basically make a uh, an example of you. Um, so, how does one go about uh, getting a degree in Assyriology? How does one get into that realm? Uh, it's probably not even a word of Assyriology that a lot of people are even familiar yeah. with. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I say that about all your questions, actually. Sorry, it's sort of a stock <laughs> response here. Um, no, I, 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 this is a fascinating field uh, to me because you know so so many people um, know about the Bible, for example, and you can hear me just in in that in that last discussion or a section of the discussion talking about you know how the Old Testament kind of came into play and you know, the, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, and how that affected or how that, you know, can be accessed in a way uh, by studying Assyriology because you study the, the history and the cultures of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Uh, but but how do you get into that? Well, uh, I'll talk about my experience and then, um, you know, go, go a little more broadly. I was in seminary, so I, I went and got my bachelor's degree in religious studies from a Christian university, and then I wanted to become a pastor slash chaplain, and so I thought the the best way to do that, of course, was to to go get an advanced degree. So I was going to get a, a master's degree in divinity, which would, you know, when you get a master's of divinity, often what you're studying is you, you depending on the school, you do study Greek, um, you do study Hebrew, generally less so, uh, but those are the kind of the two major languages of the, of the Bible. Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old Testament. Uh, but m- most people, in, again, in my experience, tend to focus more on Greek because, you know, theological purposes, studying the New Testament is often more important if you're going to be a pastor or a, you know, a chaplain or something. Uh, but I focused more on Hebrew and uh, 
I ended up teaching some Hebrew when when I was in seminary, and um, I learned Aramaic, which was you know the other language of the Old Testament, the other language that some of the Old Testament was written in. And I, I remember speaking to my professor, and he said, "Well, look, if you really want to understand the the Old Testament well, if you want to understand the Old Testament, uh, you know, broadly, all the background of the ancient Near East and everything." The place to do that is is Assyriology. You know, you want to understand um, what was going on out to the east, right? What was what was going when we talk about um, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, throwing off the yoke of the Assyrians? Who were those people? You know, when the Babylonians come in and destroy Jerusalem, you know, who were those Babylonians? And um, so that's what I that's what I did. I started to study Akkadian. Uh, which is, you know, one of the two major languages in Assyriology. And then I applied to go to um, Johns Hopkins University. So Johns Hopkins has a a Near Eastern Studies department, and uh, there are a lot of schools that have that. Um, So, you know, Yale and um, NYU and um, Harvard and the Oriental Institute in Chicago and Berkeley and a bunch of Brown, bunch of schools have, um, you know, uh, Near Eastern Studies departments. And a lot of times in those Near Eastern Studies departments, you'll have not only Assyriology as a field of study, but you'll also have archaeology, because archaeology is intimately involved in ancient Near Eastern studies. You'll have Egyptology, which I think most people are familiar with, study of ancient Egypt. And then you'll have Hebrew Bible. And uh, that sort of, you'll you'll also have the field of Hittitology, which is uh, the study of the Hittites who were up in, you know, modern day Turkey. And that sort of will, often that will kind of round out, at least to the major um, areas that one can study, Egypt to the Southwest, you know, the area of, Syria, Palestine, with Hebrew Bible studies, as you move up, you know, up the coast, uh, the Hittites up uh, to the north uh, of uh, of the Mediterranean, and then Assyriology, which you know studies um, that region um, to the to the east, Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and then archaeology, which kind of does all of it. Um, you can have archaeologists in Egyptology, have archaeologists in Assyriology, and and so on, but um, so I got into that field through um, through Johns Hopkins, and uh, it was incredibly beneficial to me. But I mean, anybody that wants to get into a seriology, probably a good thing to do is, uh, I mean, obviously you could contact us, but you know, look into uh, schools like you know Harvard and Yale and you know, Brown, some of these these um, these universities that are going to have a dedicated, you know, Near Eastern Studies department. And, you know, that would be my advice. Try to keep your grades up as you go through your bachelor's degree uh, or your and or your master's degree and then apply to these, you know, these departments that where you can really focus on a seriology. Um, But, yeah, feel please, anybody feel free to contact us, digitalhammurabi at gmail.com. And, um, you know, we can, we can talk to you sort of offline about good methods based on where you are and what you're studying to, uh, to get into that. But a lot of people do get into the field of Assyriology coming from like a, a, a Old Testament or a Hebrew Bible background because that, that sort of becomes a stepping stone. They want to learn more like I did about, um, you know, studies in, in the ancient Near East more broadly, which would give them a, a a, a better background into the Hebrew Bible. And of course that uh, will often branch out beyond the Hebrew Bible fairly extensively. So how does one, when you, you know, you, you have two, a couple major, major areas of study uh, yourself, like how would you compare the differences of how, when you get, when you want to, you know, dive deep, really do some research, how do you have to approach, uh, something like a seriology compared to Old Testament studies. How would your approach differ and uh, tell us a little bit about how you 
how you approach those types of topics of study. Yeah, actually, um, I think that one of the big differences is trying to sort out the commitments of scholars that uh, are doing, you know, that are writing on a particular topic. Let me let me see if I can explain that a little bit better. Um, if I went in to study a topic about Catholicism and I I pick up a book and I start reading and I find out, you know, this person thinks that, uh, you know, the, the, this, this particular belief held by Catholics is terrible. And uh, by the way, I'm just picking this at random here. Sorry, Catholics listening. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that they're just completely, you know, they're way off on what it is that they think. And, um, and then I look down at the author and I find out that the author is a Baptist, right? That Baptist mm. has a commitment and that commitment is often that Catholics aren't, you know, real Christians. I'm generalizing here. I apologize, but you'll often find that a Baptist will say, well, I, you know, Catholics aren't really Christians and they don't know what they're, you know, they're talking about theologically. And so you would have to weigh that in, right? You have to factor that in. Well, wait a minute, this guy might be a great scholar, but he has a commitment you know, at least possibly, you have to you have to think about that. Is his commitment to his Baptist faith influencing what he says about the Catholic religion, right? Um, and that sort of thing happens actually a fair amount in uh, Hebrew Bible studies. So, you know, when you when you pick up a book and you read something about, yeah, I, I, I just wrote a book. Uh, some people know. <laughs> I wrote a book recently on slavery in the Hebrew Bible, and you know when you pick up a commentary or you pick up a, a you know a monograph a book on slavery, you really do have to look at who's writing it because a lot of times if you pick it up and this is this is just how it is um, if you have a conservative evangelical author, what's going to happen? Oftentimes, and this, I'm, I'm not trying to necessarily knock um, any one group here, but 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 this is just conservative evangelicals will often have a commitment that comes through in their writing, and so you you'll find them necessarily um, necessarily is not the right word, but perhaps consciously or even unconsciously um, interpreting data points in a way that is nicer to the biblical text, right? Or, or that, um, gives the benefit, the benefit of the doubt. So if you, uh, if you pick up a book on the history, something, some aspect of historicity of, uh, you know, something in the Hebrew Bible, you'll see a, often the benefit of the doubt being given to the biblical text. And you don't generally see that sort of thing I don't anyway in Near Eastern studies, you know, just just general Assyriology topics. So when you, you know, when you're looking at things like did Gilgamesh exist, there aren't really, generally speaking, people that have commitments to the worship of Gilgamesh. Right? You don't have a lot of people out there worshiping Gilgamesh. I'm sure there are, but you know, in the field, that's not something we generally run into. So you don't have people when they write like Andrew George. I don't think <laughs> worships. Uh, Gilgamesh, and so when he writes his you know section in his uh, two volume book on on Gilgamesh, uh, you don't have to. Generally speaking, you don't have to think. Does he have a bias to try to you know make Gilgamesh more historical than maybe what he was, or the other way around, right? Um, because it's not relevant if there's no if there's no bias if there's no commitment that that person has to the topic, often it just doesn't show through. So you you don't have to as often think about things like, okay, who's writing this? What is their religious background, for example? Um, are they, you know, are they an evangelical? Are they a Catholic? Are they an anti-theist? You know, you, you don't really have to consider those things nearly as much when you do research into a topic because that in, in Assyriological studies, um, because... It, it doesn't matter as much when you when you're reading a book on Enki or you're reading a book on um, 
what uh, the city of Eridu was like in the third millennium. You know, you, you don't have people coming to it like they come to what was the city of Jericho like in the second millennium, right? Because that matters theologically to a lot of people. That matters, um, you know, from a religious standpoint, that matters depending on how they view the, the Old Testament, how they view the Hebrew Bible, whether Jericho was a major city that fell in the, you know, the, the late 15th century, uh, that can matter. So you have to consider that. And is this person really being honest with the data? Is this person, does do they have a commitment where they're trying to make the data say things consciously or unconsciously that, you know, is is outside of what the data can say? So... Would you say, um, so you, you kind of touched on a little bit with the Syrians uh, being motivated by possibly like different gods. Uh, it, it, let me ask this the Babylonians, the Assyrians, you know, they had all these different gods that, that were worshipped. How real was the, were these gods to them? Uh, was it more ceremonial? I guess it would, I mean, I mean that's a big open question. You know, just talking about large groups of people, different cultures. But your average, uh, like, experience, I mean, how, how, how real was this to them? These, these, all the different God beliefs. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, sort of as a caveat, it's it's difficult to get into, if, if not impossible, to get into the mind of, <laughs> you know, an ancient. But, I mean, I would say from what we know, uh, very real. You know, um, I, I would say as, as real as, um, you know, again, to just kind of use something common to everybody, you know, Jesus would be to an evangelical Christian, right? Or to a Christian, I guess. Um, I mean, I remember when I, I'll speak from my experience, you know, when I, when I was a Christian, um, you know, God was incredibly real. And when I, I always use this story, but when I was driving somewhere and there was a parking space available, I would say, thank you, Lord, for providing this parking space for me. Like I, that was, that was God's hand at work. Um, and, you know, I'm just thinking about that. I think about, you know, when worshipers would go and they would, um, you know, go to the temple or they would um, have have different statuettes, little figurines, whatever, in their houses, or they would have plaques up on the walls. Um, there's, a, there's a whole series of um, sexual plaques that um, ostensibly hung up particularly near doorways and people's bedrooms. And, you know, these were, these were things that were, um, you know, the, the divine was very real, I think, to these people. And, you know, we have texts that are very similar to like the book of Job, uh, when, you know, which are, you know, why, why is it that bad things happen? You know, what is it that the gods are doing? Why are they allowing this? You know, those sorts of questions are very real to these people and their incantations that are done. There's, there are different uh, rituals that are performed to drive the evil out of someone's house. Um, so, you know, there's quite a wide range of these types of things. And, uh, I think it was, I think they were, it was incredibly real to them. And I, I would say that, you know, from what I understand of the terms intrinsic and extrinsic rel- religiosity, that these people were engaging in intrinsic religiosity it was part of the if as i understand that term it was part of their life it was it was it was you know in in many ways um you know it's central integral to how they thought and how they acted and and you know what it is how they how they understood the world so yeah i think it was very real did did, did the assyrians have a a main god you know someone who knows very literal about uh those time periods and, and the kind of gods they believed in, was there a, a particular god that most believed in in that uh, that culture? Was it a uh, was it you know uh, more polytheist? Was it multiple gods? What was their like their go to? Yeah, I mean, this is something that um, it could be considered somewhat foreign to us, particularly out you know here where you and I are here in the, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know. Generally, when we speak about or when we think about God or gods today, we're thinking about 
there's that one God that's correct, you know, the one God that's real, and then all the others are fakes, right? Non-existent gods. Um, now, that's not true everywhere, right? There are obviously very many polytheistic um, believers, but, you know, most of the people that you and I interact with, I think, um, think monotheistically, right? So if you have, if Allah's real, then Yahweh's not, right? It's like one or the other. And there's, there's like one main one. Um, and I'd say that's probably close to this, to the standard for many people. Uh, and so it, because of that, it can be difficult, I think, for us to understand how it is that, you know, people in the ancient Near East and even in, you know, the, the period like of the New Testament, how people viewed uh, deities. So, um, and, and, and again, this is a 3,000 year period. So it, it's, it's not this, uh, you know, monolith. Uh, people, sure. people developed in their understanding of, of the gods. But I mean, generally speaking, the gods, uh, early on in particular, there was a god for every major city, right? There was a, even minor cities. You know, each city had its own god. And so you can see there's a uh, a series of texts in the third millennium that we have that describe a border conflict between two cities, the city of Uma and the city of Lagash, and they're fighting over this field. Um, this field is, you know, very important. And, uh, of course, we only have it from, we have these texts coming from one side, um, you know, the Lagash side. Uh, but their god is, you know, fighting against the god of the other city. That's how this is depicted. So Ningirsu is fighting against Shara. And and because of that, you know, sort of on the divine plane, how this is happening, where Ningirsu is doing the fighting for Lagash, uh, that you see, you know, the, the effects of that here on Earth, uh, in the earthly realm. And it wasn't that the people that worshipped Ningirsu didn't think that Shara didn't exist. I mean, they certainly did. Uh, they just knew that Ningirsu was kicking ass and taking names, right? Uh, and this was this was sort of the case throughout. People people understood different deities to exist, and it and I, you know it's very complex. I don't want to overly simplify it here, but. You know, this this idea of allowing for a, a wide variety of deities to exist, it was very commonplace. You know, the river was a deity, the sun was a deity, the moon a deity, you know. It, um, and so when you come down into the first millennium, however, sort of the, you know, the, the period of, uh, you know, what the Bible is you know, purported to be describing, uh, things had developed a little bit in uh, Mesopotamia, this area that, you know, that uh, I study Mesopotamia, but it's the first time I can't believe it that I've said that word in this podcast. But Mesopotamia is that region of Iraq and, you know, eastern Syria that sort of is the focal point of what a Syriologist study. And Mesopotamia just means like between the two rivers. So there are two rivers that drain down into the Persian Gulf, the head of the Persian Gulf, and those are, um, you know, they, the, the Tigris and the Euphrates come down, and then there's the the Shat al-Arab, the, 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 what do you call it, the one water course that drains down into the Persian Gulf. But those two main rivers, the Tigris uh, off to the east and then the Euphrates to the west, that land that is um, between them and, you know, slightly to the outside is uh, Mesopotamia. And that's what, that's what Assyriologists primarily study is that region. Um, so in the first millennium, when the Assyrians really kind of came into came into their own, came into real power, there had there's there become this uh, religious development where their one main deity, Ashur, became uh, sort of a, a national deity, and so it, it you know the Assyrians worshipped Ashur, and he was their you know the one main god, uh, he was the national deity, and. When the later on, in you know, right at the end of the seventh century, when the the Babylonians in the south, the Neo Babylonian Empire, conquered the um, the Neo Assyrian Empire, the Assyrians, uh, their main god Marduk uh, was their national deity, and so what you ended up having was um, 
a lot of these more local gods, and again, it's much more complex than this, but a lot of local deities sort of became syncretized um, with the with with Marduk, for example. Uh, but but you ended up having major deity, a, a major deity that sort of was over the other smaller deities in that sense. Um, so it's actually pretty complicated. Um, but it's it's important to be able to place those things not only in their geographical context, but also in their chronological context. When you think about um, ancient Mesopotamia, what period of time are we talking about? Is it you know third millennium, second millennium, first? You know what's what are the differences there in the way the people, the ways that people thought about um, their deities and uh, what developments had taken place? So it's actually really important. It's a good question. So one goes and spends many years studying to be a stereologist, and you finish your degree. Where do you go from there? What is what is the stereologist do? <laughs> Cashier. I'm just kidding. You can't get a job uh, at Walmart. Not today. No. <laughs> no. Um, lots of different ways that you can go. Um, so it, when when I went to Hopkins. Um, when I was applying to the school, my professor and the chair of the department, they both sat me down and essentially said, listen, not only is there no guarantee that there's a a job in a seriology waiting for you if you graduate from this program, not only is that not guaranteed, but it's not terribly likely. Right? What's probably going to happen if you stay in the field of a seriology you're probably going to um, go to this one or two year. You're gonna you're gonna fight for, uh, apply for, and hopefully get a one year or a two year what they call postdoctoral program, a postdoc, where you'll go to I don't know Brown University for a year, and you do some research up there, and they're gonna pay you not an awful lot of money, but you'll publish you know, some stuff, publish a couple articles, teach some classes, get some experience in the field. And then you'll probably fight for another postdoctoral position somewhere else, maybe for a year or two. And it might not even be in the U.S. It might be, you know, over in Europe somewhere. And then maybe after two or even three of these postdocs, um, an opening will come up at the Oriental Institute in Chicago or you know, up at Harvard or at Hopkins or, you know, whatever, you, and you'll be able to apply for a tenure-track position, one that you can, you know, get, and you're there, and you you teach and you publish, and after, you know, what, five years or so, they determine if you get to get tenure at that particular university, right? If you don't get tenure, you know, then you're going somewhere else to try to get tenure somewhere else, but that's sort of the the trajectory if you're going to teach in the field, right? That's what that's what that's what it was presented to me, and that's generally speaking the case in my experience. It's what happens um, very very often, and it's actually one of the reasons that Megan and I are so passionate about doing digital Hammurabi, because part of the reason that you don't have that sort of problem in other fields is that. Um, in many other fields, is because there's such an interest. There's, you know, things like, um, I don't want to say anything specifically, but there are many other fields in math, maybe in mathematics uh, or in engineering or something, um, where it, there's a high demand, right? Uh, that people see that as incredibly valuable to be, I don't know, an engineer. I'm assuming that. Maybe I shouldn't assume that. But, um, and so, you know, that, that there, there are a lot of positions open or maybe more positions open. It's not um, because it's seen as, as more valuable. And that's sort of what we're going for. We're, we're trying to uh, work toward here with this channel is to try to make a seriology, to make ancient Near Eastern studies cooler, right? To make it not, not just cooler, but so that the people understand why it's important. So like even this conversation, Skylar, that you and I are having here, it's to generate interest in this field because it is important. It is, it's critical for people to understand 
um, things like Akkadian and Sumerian and uh, ancient Near Eastern studies because of the effect, the direct effect that it has uh, on things like biblical studies, particularly Hebrew studies. Hey, Oliver, you want to come say hi? We're being very quiet, Megan says. Here, thank you very much. Do you want to come say hi? Come here. Can you say hi? Hey. <laughs> All right, say bye. Can you say bye? Oh, you're blowing kisses? Good job. Hey, should everybody go and subscribe to the Skylar Fiction channel on YouTube? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, but uh, I think that I think it's incredibly important that people understand that there's a whole background to biblical studies. And when you when you come to a topic that's so hotly debated, let's say, like slavery in the Hebrew Bible, and did the, did the uh, Hebrew Bible endorse slavery, that you can't just go to the biblical texts themselves. Right? You, you have to understand um, things like the laws of Hammurabi. Right? You have to be able to go back and read the laws of Hammurabi and really understand them in order to come to a a full and you know a complete understanding of uh, what's intended in these biblical texts. So, yeah, that's what we're shooting for. So, my, well, I guess what I would say is, for people that are looking to get into um, a seriology, uh, or even just biblical, you know, or even just um, studies in the Hebrew Bible, um, it is it is difficult. To find work once you're done, if you're you know trying to find work specifically in those fields, we're trying to change that. We're trying to bring about positive change to make it so that if if it's more interesting to people and people understand uh, the need for it, then there becomes greater demand ultimately for it, and that hopefully translates into more positions uh, become available for people to teach because programs grow, more students are coming in to to learn Assyriology, to learn Hebrew Bible, and so that will create a demand for um, more people to teach it. But if you can't, uh, you know, get an actual, um, you know, a dedicated teaching position, a tenure track position in uh, in a seriology or an ancient Near Eastern studies department, you can always teach, for example, in a history department, just a general history department. uh, or, Or, you know, you can do what I did, and that is, you know, uh, work outside of the field and do independent research. Uh, there are lots of things that you can do, but one of the things that's really beneficial about having this, you know, level of graduate, uh, formal graduate studies under my belt, is that it allows me to do effective um, and thorough research into a particular topic when I when I can have you know when it, it takes more time now to do that because. I have other commitments in my life, but when I can, I now know how to do it. I know how to research well, and I know how to research responsibly. And um, I think that's, in and of itself, um, you know, worth the time that I put into to the degrees. Let me ask you one last question. And is there, is there something that uh, maybe we haven't talked about yet during this conversation? Uh, or something you want people to understand about Assyriology, or maybe something misunderstood about Assyriology, uh, that you'd like to tell us about, or talk a little bit more about. Yeah, and I, I think this probably can dovetail a little bit into what you and I do on the Skylar Fiction Show. You know, my Assyriologists are not, as many people think, um, at least on social media, I think a lot of people look at me and think, "Oh, well, you're just you're just out to disprove the Bible. You hate the Bible, right? Because you bring this broader ancient Near Eastern background to the biblical texts, and a lot of times that requires someone who, for example, grows up in a more fundamentalist background, fundamentalist evangelical background. They have to they they didn't take into account the ancient Near Eastern background, and so uh, when they do that." Uh, unfortunately, that that requires them to shift their positions a little bit from time to time, sometimes more than they would like. And 
you know, a, a seriology is not this anti anti Hebrew Bible, anti Bible, anti God uh, of the Bible field, right? As a matter of fact, there are many many Christians that I know in a seriology, you know, Catholics and Protestants alike, and it doesn't really factor in at all because that's they're not coming to the field with this commitment to um you know proving or disproving their particular sect of christianity for example um and so i guess what i would say is people tend to have um people that are people in my experience uh here on social media tend to often have a, an animosity almost toward ancient Near Eastern studies when you bring up, you know, well, what is it in the broader ancient Near East? I saw, a, as an example, I saw a a recent video on YouTube where they were talking about a particular topic in the Hebrew Bible, and they said specifically, now, we're not going to talk about the ancient Near East, right? All we care about is what's the what does the Bible say about this? And that's really problematic because the, there shouldn't be this, you know, animosity, this, uh, you know, this, this um, the, the ancient Near Eastern studies, Assyriology does, shouldn't be fighting against biblical studies. They should be working in tandem. Uh, in fact, one should be informing the other. And if you if you find that your, for example, your religious position, uh, your, let's say, your understanding of Christianity is coming into conflict with research and developments that are being made in the fields of Assyriology or Egyptology or archaeology or just Hebrew Bible in general, you probably need to rethink your positions and say, well, wait a minute, maybe you know, maybe these fields have something to offer that I haven't considered, and maybe I need to develop um, what it is that I understand. So, Skylar, I really, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. And I know it probably wasn't easy to take this uh, time out of your day, but I think you you made this discussion, this topic, go really well, very smoothly, and uh, and I really appreciate it. So so thank you so much uh, for coming on. Oh, this is awesome, man! Thank you so much for having me. You know, I love them knocking. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's awesome. Well, that does it for us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this discussion about Assyriology in the Hebrew Bible. If you haven't gone to uh, Skylar Fiction Show on uh, YouTube and subscribe. Get over there now and do it. Uh, But thank you so much for your help, Skylar. And I'll see you all again next time here on the HeBane Podcast. 